Good morning. It's so great to uh, hear their music, and we wish them well with this, these releases. Just pray they sell tons of <coughs> CDs and music. Uh, it'd be awesome. So uh, <clears throat> I also love uh, seeing Chris's parents here. I lost my dad in March, so it's kind of feel like I have a surrogate dad over here. <laughs> Watching, uh, watching the uh, uh, the service. Well, um, this week, a 51-year-old woman uh, who worked in the tailor shop of a prison in New York appeared in court to plead guilty to helping two convicted killers uh, escape from that prison by smuggling uh, hacksaw blades, chisels drill bits uh, into them uh, hidden in uh, frozen hamburger meat. And apparently she developed a romantic relationship with one or both of these convicted killers. And afterwards she said they made her feel special. Um, she planned to run away with them and even was part of a conspiracy to kill her husband, but got cold feet at the last moment and didn't go through with it. Well, how could she do it? How could a mature woman be drawn into such a foolish, brazen, criminal conspiracy? Our key verse this morning is Jeremiah 17, 9, and it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Leading up to uh, the 2008 presidential election, the governor of South Carolina was being talked about as a, one of the uh, possible contenders to be president of the United States. Well, in 2009, uh, he disappeared for a week. He told uh, people he was going hiking alone on the Appalachian Trail, but failed to return 15 cell phone calls. He didn't call home on Father's Day to his wife or four sons, and uh, his family didn't know where he was, his staff didn't know where he was, the lieutenant governor didn't know where he was. Well, it turned out he was in Argentina with his mistress, and he had used state funds to travel there. How could he do it? How could this man betray the trust of so many people? Well, Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when many voices in our culture tell you to follow your heart, and you hear that in, as the theme of many movies, follow your heart, Jeremiah says, beware. There is this delusionary power to sin when it grips the heart that can make completely, that can make sane and otherwise reasonable people do completely outrageous things. Now, when I talk about the heart this morning, I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, who you are in the innermost, in your innermost being, your soul, the core of who you really are. Our main focus will be Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, but I want to start in verse 1 to establish some context 
And um, so let me pray as you open up to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. Lord, open the eyes of our hearts now. Uh, grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation as we read your word so that we might know and love you more deeply as a person and know how we can, can and should respond in loving obedience based on our devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1 in chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remembered their altars in their ashram, beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains and in the open country. Your wealth and all your treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know. For in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Jeremiah compares the hearts of the Hebrew people to tablets of stone, uh, hard hearts that had been diamond etched. The stone had been diamond etched with sin, he says. Now, their main problem is that they had been worshiping foreign gods instead of the one true living God. And Jeremiah notes here that even the children were caught up in this. Now, ironically, God says the consequence is that, the, that all their wealth and treasure is going to be carted away, uh, taken away by the maker of these foreign gods. And the people themselves are going to become slaves to foreigners who made these idols of wood and stone. So we see a principle here established in Scripture that anything that you turn into an idol can potentially enslave you. And that's exactly what happened to Judah. The nation of Babylon came over and stole all their treasures, uh, hauled all the people away to become slaves in Babylon, and force them to worship their gods. There's something frightening about a human heart when it's been hardened by sinful choices. And when we make the wrong choice repeatedly, God eventually lets us go our own way. He allows us a great freedom to pursue the desires of our hearts. And the hearts of the Hebrew people got harder and harder as they turned from God. On our road trip to Oregon a few weeks ago with our boys, Sam and Nate, uh, we made a stop and uh, had a conversation with a, an older woman who's a faithful churchgoer, uh, belongs to a mainline Christian denomination. And during our conversation, she made it known that she doesn't believe in sin or hell and that she considered both of these concepts to be out, outmoded or old-fashioned. And perhaps there's some of you sitting here this morning that share that sentiment, that sin or hell are uh, outmoded ideas. We have a whole generation that's uh, been brought up today to believe there are no absolute truths, no moral absolutes. And so to them, the concept of sin seems ludicrous or offensive or 
uh, a, too pessimistic of a view about humanity. But if sin and hell do not exist, then why would anyone need salvation? If all you have to do is try harder or think positively or take a pill to deal with the tough issues of life, why would you need a savior? There are really only a couple possibilities that can explain the, derivi- the, the derivation of human evil in, the, in, the, in uh, people's hearts. And number one, people are born basically good with a pure heart, and over time their heart uh, gets corrupted by the, by the environment, by uh, outside influences. Uh, there's also the possibility that um, due to uh, genetic abnormalities, people are predisposed to go down certain unhealth, unhealthful uh, pathways. <clears throat> and then there is a traditional Christian view that we're born with this inherent bent towards sin that goes all the way back to Adam. Well, are we really born with pure hearts? When I was a young parent, I observed uh, starting at about 18 months to, uh, through the, ter- the so-called terrible twos, this shocking level of defiance that's common in, uh, uh, when uh, the little, uh, these, these little ones who look so innocent would cry out no with a rebel's cry and their faces red with anger. Or when asking a, a little child, uh, asking them to share their toy with a, another child, they would say mine with this grasping, selfish, uh, selfish streak in them that really emerged before we could even teach it to them. And when I turn on the news and I survey the condition of humanity, it doesn't appear to me that people are basically okay. I see this depressing level of violence and conflict, of lust and greed that pollutes our world. The Bible teaches that the root, the source, the fountainhead of sin is within our own hearts. Sin, in other words, is an inside job. So in a sense, it is genetic, passing through the blood from generation to generation from the time of Adam. People think about the Bible as this book of rules, and if you break one of these rules, that constitutes a sin. And that's one way to look at it, but there is more to it than that. When our boys were small, and if I told little Sammy or little Nady not to jump on the couch, and then two minutes later they're jumping on the couch, uh, would that make me upset? Well, I'd be upset not so much about the condition of the couch, and that's not as important to me as the fact that they had disobeyed me as their dad. And that caused at least a temporary breach in our relationship. And at that moment of defiance, their heart turned against me. And that was painful. So sin creates a separation that cries out for restoration. Restoration of fellowship and friendship. Pastor Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York says that sin can also be turning good things 
into ultimate things. So it can be making something else the primary source of your happiness rather than God. And it could be something like your career, your kids, your spouse, the love of money, hobbies, sports, anything that becomes more significant to you as the source of your happiness. Christians believe the condition of the human heart is really the greatest problem facing humanity. And we see this going all the way back in Scripture to the time of Noah when it says God surveyed humanity at the time of Noah and all the, all the desires of their hearts was evil all the time. Their imaginations were evil. Isaiah compared the condition of humanity to sheep that had gone astray. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus taught, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus says here we cannot blame outside influences when we sin. We have it within ourselves, all the tools necessary to make a colossal mess out of our lives. In James chapter 1, he describes the seduction of the human heart. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is this unholy alliance between your lust and the object of your desires. And the child that's produced is sin. And I can go breezily down the road thinking, how could it be so wrong when it feels so right? It feels so natural. And there is this side to evil that is enticing and alluring in the short run, but it leads to heartache in the long run. In Proverbs, in Proverbs it says, the lips of the adulteress drip with honey, but in the end, she is bitter as gall. It's hard to find anybody in the Bible who didn't fall at one time or another. After the flood, Noah uh, planted a vineyard and it records that he got drunk and passed out naked in his tent. Uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, Peter denied the Lord three times. The Bible is so honest about the failing of even the greatest. I've, I have a friend who's worked with some of the uh, greatest Christian leaders, uh, uh, contemporary Christian leaders, and has met many other uh, major Christian leaders. And he says, uh, the greater the leader, the bigger the flaws. And the roots of these faults and 
failings is right there within ourselves. On our family road trip to Oregon, uh, I got to knock uh, one item off of my bucket list, which was to learn how to fly fish. And uh, uh, whether you have a, whether you fish with a, a fake fly or an artificial lure, sometimes I wonder if the fish could be so dumb as to go after this funny looking little thing with a hook sticking out of it. But there was something within that trout that said, I want that. And he went after it. The fish was enticed, drawn away, just like people get enticed by their fleshly appetites. It's interesting that the nickname for a prostitute is a hooker. She dresses in an enticing, alluring way to hook a man. There is this deceptive and delusionary condition that can take root as sin becomes habitual. The delusionary state of mind can be startling in terms of what can be justified. This prison worker faces many years in prison as a result of her heart being deceived. <clears throat> our own hearts can trick us, produce an ignorance about our own precarious condition with God, allowing us, allowing us to think everything's okay when everything's not okay. I'm amazed at how many Christian couples, both young and old, have, been, have deceived themselves into thinking it's okay to sleep together or live together before they're married. God still cares about sexual purity, whether you're young or old. Now, when I've been confronted about something, often one of my first reactions is to try to blame shift. And uh, blame shifting is the second oldest sin in the Bible. Uh, when Adam was confronted about his sin, he tried to blame Eve. And when Eve was confronted about her sin, she tried to blame the serpent. Uh, it's so easy for us to see the flaw in somebody else. When somebody else messes up, I see it at once. Their, their, their sin appears to me in their true, vivid, living color. Uh, and, I, and that sort of critical, judgmental spirit can rise up in me that I uh, have to beat down. But if I'm the one who messed up, my own self-love can color my perceptions. And this can cause me to minimize the situation. And I can come up with some pretty good creative justifications to myself. I might even attempt to turn the blame back on the accuser or someone who's accusing me and try to find some flaw or fault in them. Could we really do that as people? Yes, this is the condition of humanity. In Jeremiah 17.5, he contrasts the person who trusts in God with the person who trusts in man. He says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. The man who trusts in his own heart, in his own strength, the, writer, the uh, scripture here compares to a 
a bush that is in a, in a dry place in the desert, uh, withering away, barely surviving. Because the deceitfulness of the heart ultimately chokes out life. It can take us into a death spiral emotionally, spiritually, physically. In fact, the scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. That means the consequences that we earn over time is this deadening of our soul, our spirit. We get farther and farther away from God, and ultimately there is physical death. Well, remember in the passage in James, which says that lust gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Well, what does that mean? It means when it's fully entrenched in your heart, when it becomes habitual. Sin in its infancy can seem uh, pretty innocent. I feel okay. Uh, I don't seem to be suffering any consequences. And you may, might think to, think to yourself, maybe I've beaten God in this game. Maybe he didn't really say, don't go down that road. As Pastor Adrian Rogers says, first sin fascinates, then it assassinates. First it thrills, then it kills. You're not going to win at that game. If you play the devil's game, he's going to take you farther than you want to go and exact a price that's steeper than you want to pay. Sin is like this virus that's lodged in our hearts. It has infected us. Well, what's the answer for this fatal disease that lies within the human heart? The good news is that God has created a plan, a pathway, so that even the biggest sinner can be forgiven completely and go to heaven. God loves you no matter what sins you have in your past. I've interviewed uh, uh, and talked to people who, who were part of the uh, genocide of, uh, in Cambodia and killed. This one man killed, was responsible for killing thousands he said, my sin is so great, there's no way God could forgive this. Yes, God can forgive even the greatest sin. And he cared so much about the problem of human evil that he sent his son to die, to pay the price, to suffer for every sin that you've committed, past, present, and future. Verse 10 tells us that God searches the heart. He knows your heart inside and out. He knows your private thoughts, and yet he still loves you. If we knew everybody's private thoughts, it would be tough to love each other, but God still loves us. And as we get a little bit farther along in, in Jeremiah, we get a picture of hope. God offers this new promise. He's going to replace that hardened, diseased heart, he says, with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that's responsive to him. He offers a new heart, a new life in relationship with him. The story has been told about a certain man who went to see a doctor uh, called uh, Dr. Law, L-A-W, about this, uh, these problems he had been having. And he said to Dr. Law, I've been having problems with my eyes, my hands, and my feet. You see, I, my eyes are uh, looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. 
my hands are doing things I shouldn't be doing, and my feet are going places that I really shouldn't be going. So Dr. Law ran some tests on this man and came back to him and said, well, your problem isn't really your eyes, your hands, or your feet. You really have a heart problem. In fact, your heart is so badly diseased, you're going to need a heart transplant. Well, can you do the surgery, the man asked. Dr. Law said, no, I'm not a surgeon. I only diagnose. Well, who can help me? Uh, Dr. Grace, he's right across the hall. <clears throat> well, do I need to make an appointment? No, he'll see you right away. Well, I can imagine that a surgery like this is going to be very expensive. What's it going to cost me? Nothing. It won't cost a thing. So Dr. Loss sent the man across the hall, and he was ushered in and met, uh, he said, the kindest-looking man he'd ever seen in his life. And Dr. Grace performed the surgery on that man and removed the diseased heart and put a new heart within him. And after the operation, an amazing thing happened. There was a remarkable change in the man's eyes, hands and feet, because he'd been given a new heart. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you this morning. He wants to remove your old, hardened, diseased heart and replace it with a soft heart and fill you with his joy, his love, his peace, a peace that you've never known before. And the process of going through a heart transplant in our modern medical system can cost roughly $200,000. And it can, the waiting time can be weeks, months, or even years, depending on your blood type and other factors. But the great physician, Jesus, filled with grace, offers you a new heart freely to you this morning, and you don't have to wait. Will you take him up on that offer of a new heart this morning. I'm going to pray here uh, just a moment, and if you've never asked God for a new heart, you can ask him for a new heart as I pray. Father in heaven, I, can, I admit that I have gone my own way and that I've been a rebel. In fact, uh, I do have a sinful heart. I ask you, uh, Lord, for a new heart, I believe that you died and rose again. And I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me into the kind of person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.